Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning and Merry Christmas. It is a joy, as always, to be here. This is the always the crowning jewel of my week. Uh, I look forward to this every week, being with my church family. Um, and while I love to preach God's word, uh, it is unfortunate it's under these circumstances with Jeff being sick. Um, I know he's excited about the series in Matthew he was doing. Um, so, but I, I'm I'm grateful to preach. Thankful to our elders for the opportunity. Um, but just wanted to throw that out there. It is not ideal, and uh, I wish it was under better circumstances that I was preaching. But uh, we pray for Jeff's recovery. I think he's sounds like he's doing a little better. He texted me the other day, so I guess he's doing better than he was a few days ago. But anyway, as we continue to worship together, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 8. And we're going to be looking this morning at... What probably isn't a traditional Christmas text, but is nonetheless, uh, as we'll see in a moment, a very rich Christmas text. And we're going to be looking at Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. And the title of the message this morning is, Freedom Arrived at Christmas. Freedom Arrived at Christmas. Let's look now to what Paul writes in Romans 8, beginning in verse For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. In 1794, recently, in 1794, a group of disgruntled citizens in western Pennsylvania burned a local tax inspector's home. Three years earlier, Congress had passed a legislation which imposed a new tax on whiskey. After the tax was passed, pushback from American citizens soon followed, particularly in the state of Pennsylvania. Tensions rose over the next three years, culminating in the angry mob's act of defiance. Believing that this rebellion would become a legitimate threat to the the stability of our new nation, President Washington marched 13,000 soldiers to western Pennsylvania. Easily quieted this rebellion. Upon his arrival, more than 20 were arrested from the angry mob, And two men were convicted of treason and sentenced to death. These men would not be put to death for their crimes. For just a short time later, in July of 1795, the first presidential pardon in our nation's history would take place as President Washington pardoned these two men sentenced to death. For these two men, there was no longer any condemnation. No more. It was gone. Well, that, brothers and sisters, is but a small parable or picture of what God has done for us 
through Christ. For those who are in Christ Jesus, the Apostle Paul declares in Romans 8.1 that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This word translated as condemnation is a word which only appears two other times in all the New Testament, both of which are in Romans and in chapter 5, and they both refer to the condemnation that resulted from Adam's sin in the garden. Adam sinned, and through his sin came condemnation, judgment, not only upon him, but upon all of his descendants, all of us, everyone born in Adam this side of the fall. In him, we've been born sinful, and like him, we've all sinned, and like him, we all stand condemned before God for our sin, bound to face his good and just wrath upon our sin. We're not just out of fellowship with God because of our sin. We're under the judgment of God because of our sin. And naturally, our fate is to spend all eternity under his judgment. Paul sums it up best in Ephesians 2 verse 3 when he says that we are all children of wrath. But in Christ Jesus, Paul declares we're no longer condemned. We've been pardoned by God for our crimes against him. In Christ, we are completely free forever from the judgment we deserve. There is right now at this very moment and forevermore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So how is this freedom ours? Why are the words of Romans 8.1 true for us? How is this the case? Our text this morning answers that question. These verses begin with a preposition, the word for, which indicates to us that these verses, verses 3 and 4, which we just read, serve as an explanation for what Paul has just said in verse 1. And this is actually the second of two reasons that Paul gives in this section to explain the reason why Romans 8.1 is true, why we have no condemnation. In Romans 8 verse 2, the verse immediately preceding our text, Paul reminds us we are free in Christ because the law of the spirit of life, i.e. the life-giving spirit working through the gospel, has set us free from the law of sin and death. That is, the spirit has brought us to life through the gospel, resulting in faith in the Lord Jesus in whom we've been freed from our law-breaking and the condemnation of it. But here in verses 3 and 4, Paul gets down to the very bottom, to the bedrock of all this, and he provides us the ultimate foundational reason we are free in Christ through faith alone. And for Paul, the answer is simple. The reason why we are free from condemnation is because of Christmas, not the holiday we celebrate on December 25th, but the event we celebrate on December 25th. As we just read a moment ago, the key phrase in this passage is in verse 3 where Paul tells us that God sent his own son. Because God sent his own son, there is no condemnation for the Christian. Because God sent his son, we are free forever from the judgment we deserve. That's why Romans 8.1 is true. That's why you have no condemnation, dear Christian. 
Paul wants us who are in Christ to remember that, that we are freed from the condemnation of our sin because and only because God sent his son. That's the overarching emphasis of these verses. And church family, I pray as we walk through them that you will be comforted and strengthened in your faith, not just today, but every day until we make it home. That this will become one of those fighter passages you look to. As we move through this passage, I want us to notice three things. Paul tells us of three things God has done by sending his son. First, I want us to notice at the beginning of verse 3, Paul tells us what God has achieved by sending his son. What God has achieved by sending his son. Look at me again at what he says in the first half of verse 3. Paul writes, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. When Paul refers to the law, he's referring to the moral standards that are most clearly expressed in the Ten Commandments, which are centered around perfect love and devotion to the Lord and perfect love and devotion to neighbor. In other words, they summarize what Jesus teaches us of the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, before we think about what the law cannot do for us, let's remember what the law of God does do for us. Through the law, God reveals to us his holiness, his nature, his character. He reveals to us how we are to live as his creatures in light of who he is, how we're to relate to one another as his creatures. The law tells us of why we were made, and the law tells us of what God requires of us. The law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm 19.1 tells us, it is good, but the law is incapable of doing something for us. And what is that that the law cannot provide for us? What can the law not do? It cannot provide us right standing before God. To have life with God, we must be justified. We must be declared righteous by God. That is, we must be declared to be perfect keepers of his law. And that's been the case since the Garden of Eden. And God's relationship he established with Adam, what theologians often refer to as the covenant of works, God promised Adam that upon his sin, death would come to him. Not just physical death, but eternal death. Separation, alienation, judgment. Consequently, if Adam had obeyed instead of disobeyed God, if he would have upheld God's law, He would have earned life. Life was promised. Life was held out upon the condition of Adam's obedience. And he fell. And though we have fallen with Adam, that is still the principle if one would earn life on their own. Jesus made this same point to a lawyer in Luke chapter 10 who was seeking to earn eternal life on his own. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. But in Luke 10, 25 to 28... Luke recounts this conversation and he he writes, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Notice what Jesus says. He said to him, you have answered correctly, 
do this and you will live. By fulfilling the law, life is earned. The problem is, none of us this side of the fall can do that. That's what Paul means when he says that the law is weakened by the flesh. The only way the law is a means of life for someone is if one is truly righteous. For that person, the law brings life. But none of us fit that description because we've all broken the law of God. We've all loved something or someone other than God. We've all constructed idols to which we give our hearts affection and the list goes on and on and on. That is what we see when we look in the standard set forth in the law. All we are reminded of is that we are great failures. All we see is our rebellion. All we see is the judgment we deserve. All we see is that we are not perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. It cannot deliver us from our lawbreaking because we are lawbreakers and the standard is perfection. No matter how hard we try, no matter how much effort we may put forth, no matter how much improvement may come, the law is incapable of rescuing us from our failure to obey it. So the problem is not with God's law, the problem is with us. As the late theologian Charles Hodge writes, the law was strong to perform its own office. That is to justify all by whom it was perfectly obeyed. Its weakness was through the flesh. That is the guilt and corruption of our nature. The weakness is not in the law. It is in man. But the good news of Christmas is that God who gave the law has done for us who have broken his law what the law could not do. That is, he has provided a remedy to our broken condition. He has provided us with rescue from the condemnation of our law-breaking. He's provided us with fellowship with himself, and he has done so through sending his own son. Christ came for one reason and purpose, to rescue us from the curse of our law-breaking, to do for us what the law could never do. That is why when the son took on flesh, he was named Jesus, Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. Very popular name in Israel. It's like naming your child Bob. No offense, Bob. Bob's a great name. But for Jesus, his name was not a unique name. But this baby being named Jesus was a very unique occasion. Because as Pastor Jeff reminded us a few weeks ago from Matthew 1.21, he was named Jesus because as the angel told Joseph, he will save his people from their sins and he will do so by bringing us what the law could not by bringing us justification that brothers and sisters is what Christmas is all, is all about it isn't about the presents I don't see any of the kids with you know wide open mouths going presents are awesome it's not about the presents it's not about the music it's not about the delicious hot chocolate and treats the time spent with loved ones though all that is great I will do all of that today. We ought to cherish that. It's about God sending his son to accomplish and provide us with justification. Because he sent his son, dear Christian, you have justification. You have right standing before God. In the remainder of this passage, Paul is going to tell us how God has done just that. How he's provided justification through his son. So after telling us what God has achieved by sending his son... Paul tells us, secondly, what God has condemned by sending his son. What God has condemned by sending his son. 
Paul continues and writes in the second half of verse 3, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now what does that mean? When Paul says that he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Does that mean that Christ only appeared to take on flesh? Does that mean that Jesus was not truly man but only appeared to be? After all, God is sinless. How does the holy and righteous God take on sinful flesh? The word choice is key by Paul. He does not say that Jesus was sent in sinful flesh. That would undermine the truth of his deity. Nor does he say in the likeness of flesh, which would undermine his humanity. But Paul says he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He stepped into humanity. He who made man without ceasing to be God became one of us. Born in a manger in Bethlehem as a helpless baby. But in his incarnation, Jesus did not inherit what we have all inherited in Adam. If you remember in Genesis 3.15, when God proclaims the first gospel promise to Adam, Eve, and the serpent who deceived them, he said that this promised serpent crusher, the one who will restore fellowship broken through the fall, is not the seed of the man, but he's the seed or the offspring of the woman. It's a weird term because the sons are the seed of their fathers. That's why we have all those genealogies with all the begats in them that we love to skip over in our devotional times. But it emphasizes something to us. Jesus didn't have an earthly father. He was born of a virgin. That being the case, he didn't inherit Adam's guilt nor his corruption. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he himself was without sin, and in his humanity, he never sinned. Rather, he was perfectly obedient to the law of God, fully obedient to the law you and I have broken. There's never been a moment for us, not now, not ever, where we can look in the mirror and say, I've loved the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I've loved my neighbor as myself perfectly. But for Jesus, there was never once a moment where he failed to do that. He only ever did that while fully identifying with us in every way. He grew hungry. He grew sick. He grew tired. He had calluses on his hands. He got blisters. He wept at the tomb of his dead friend, Lazarus. But yet he was without sin. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and God sent his son, Paul says, for sin. That is, he came to be a sin offering, a sacrifice. The son of God became a man in order to bear the sin of others, though we had no sin of his own. He who knew no sin was regarded as a sinner at the cross. Brothers and sisters, our sin was placed upon him. Our record was credited to him, transferred to him. Just as the priest under the old covenant placed their hands upon the sacrificial lamb, which Daniel and Jeff have been pointing us to and telling us about in Leviticus and Hebrews, just as the old priests under the old covenant placed their hands on the sacrificial lamb, God placed his hands, as it were, upon his son at the cross and transferred our sins to him. Christ was reckoned and judged by the Father as if he lived our life. The punishment for every blasphemous, rebellious, self-exalting, God-rejecting thought, word, and action that you committed this morning and yesterday morning 
and tomorrow morning and every other day of your life was placed upon Christ at Calvary's cross. And as a result, because God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, I love this, he says in verse 3, God has condemned our sin in the flesh. Your sin deserves judgment. My sin deserves judgment. And the good news is, church, our sin, the source of our condemnation, has been dealt with once and for all. It has been condemned. It has been judged in Christ. By this language of God offering up his only son as a sacrifice, some of you might be thinking in Old Testament terms. You might be thinking back to Genesis 22, where God commands Abraham to offer up his only son Isaac, the child of the promise, the child through whom the Messiah would come. And God tells Abraham, offer him as a sacrifice to me. Abraham trusting the plan and purpose of God, believing God would provide a lamb, obeys. And just as he prepares to slaughter his only son Isaac, what happens? God tells him this, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. It's interesting. On top of that mountain, Abraham's only son was spared. On another mountain, a number of years later, God would not spare his only son, but give him up for us all. And like Isaac, we would go free. Our life would be spared eternally. God has provided a lamb. He's provided one to take our judgment in our place. Indeed, there would be no justification had this not happened. In order to be declared righteous by God, in order to be justified, we need our unrighteous record removed from us. We can't be declared perfect law keepers while our record says lawbreakers. We need our record erased. We need our sin dealt with, and God has done just that by crushing his son in our place. As Paul says in Romans 4, verse 25, Christ was delivered up for our trespasses. Therefore, in Christ, we can sing with Horatio Spafford, the hymn writer, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. If you're in Christ, that's your testimony this morning. Amen. I love that. He doesn't see your sin, church. He doesn't see your record of law-breaking. What good news this is, because today, tomorrow, and every day you will live in this life, you will continue to show yourself being worthy of the judgment of God. But you never will be judged because your sin has been dealt with. It's been condemned in the flesh. Well, as amazing as this is, Paul isn't done yet. In verse 4, Paul rounds off this discussion about Christmas after telling us of what God has accomplished by sending his son and of what God has condemned by sending his son, he tells us third and finally what God has fulfilled by sending his son. What God has fulfilled 
by sending his son. God did not send his son in the world only to be a sin offering. Christ did not just come to bear our punishment on the cross of Calvary. Rather, he took our punishment on the cross. He was condemned in our flesh. As Paul continues in verse 4, he says, In order that, so that, here's the purpose, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Paul's identifier there at the end of verse 4 when he refers to Christians as those who walk not according to the flesh but the Spirit, it's a reminder to the Roman Christians and us of the miraculous transformation that has come about in our lives. Formerly we were enslaved to our flesh, to our sinful passions and pleasures, which is primarily a way of unbelief. We were walking in unbelief, in rejection of the gospel, ignorant of the gospel. But now we walk by the Spirit, which is primarily the life of faith, trusting and resting in Christ. Paul's going to talk, go on in the rest of Romans 8 to talk about what life in the Spirit looks like. You can go read that this afternoon. But for our purposes, know that this is just simply another way of referring to what it means to be a Christian. We're no longer dead but alive. We're no longer rejecting Christ but resting in him. So what does Paul say? Paul says that for those who are in Christ, united to him by faith, who are alive by the Spirit, he says that in Christ Jesus not only was our sin condemned, but now the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us. What is this righteous requirement? The righteous requirement here is the same standard set forth by the law we talked about a moment ago. Perfect, perpetual, personal obedience to God. Loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself without wavering, without deviation, all of your days. That's the righteous requirement of the law. And Paul declares that Christ went to the cross, was condemned in our place, so that this righteous requirement might be fulfilled in us. So as a result of Christ's cross, that standard that we could never met or meet has now been met. So what does that mean? Some see in these words that this is Paul referring to the obedience worked in our lives by the Spirit of God. While it is true that as a result of our salvation, God causes us to walk in obedience to him, I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here. Though it is true that God produces obedience in our hearts, fruit within our hearts of saving faith, such as repentance, following Christ faithfully, and the list goes on, our obedience will never match up to the righteous requirement of God's law. None of us will ever love God as he requires until we are glorified, until we receive the resurrection life to come. Until then, our obedience while producing us by the Spirit does not fulfill God's demand. The requirement is perfection, not trying hard, not faithfulness, but perfect. Inwardly and outwardly to the law. Listen to John Calvin's words on this point. In his commentary on this verse, Calvin says, they who understand that the renewed by the spirit of Christ fulfill the law introduce a gloss wholly alien to the meaning of Paul. For the faithful, while they sojourn in this world, never make such a proficiency as that the justification of the law becomes in them full or complete. No matter how much we grow in Christ's likeness, we will never measure up to the law. So this can't 
be referring to our obedience. While that is true, the righteous demand of the law has been met. So what is this talking about, Paul? It's talking about what Christ did for us through his living. Through his perfect life, through his perfect obedience, he was not only able just to bear our judgment, but beloved, he was able to give to us the perfect record we so desperately need. He died the death we deserve. Praise God for that. Amen. Hallelujah. He died under our judgment. But he did more than that. He didn't just die for us. He lived for us. He fulfilled it on our behalf. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We don't become righteous. We aren't infused with righteousness. We are declared righteous. And we are declared righteous based on the righteousness of another. What Luther calls an alien righteousness. A righteousness that's outside of us, earned by someone else, credited to us by faith. That's the great end of Christ's work, beloved. Christ came to provide for us what the law could not, justification. And he's provided that for us through his life and death. Through his cross, he takes away our guilty record. By his life, he gives to us a perfect record. And now as a result, God declares us to be righteous. This is huge for us to grasp because if all Christ did was die for us, we would not be free. If all Christ did was remove our guilt at the cross, you would be a spiritual zero. Your record would be blank. It's not good enough. We need a perfect record, and in Christ it's been provided. Because of this twofold work, because of Christ's life and death, we know that we are justified. We know that God has indeed accomplished and provided for us what the law never could. Again, what a comfort this is for us as Christians. Because every day, even this morning, you and I fail to measure up to that standard. Every day we are reminded that we fall short. But the good news is in God's eyes, when he looks at us through faith in Christ, he only sees us as if we've perfectly met the standard all the time, every time. Even though we have not and we never will until we make it home or Christ returns. This is good news this morning. Truly because of Christ's life and death, we are justified, and therefore being justified in Christ Jesus, we can truly claim for ourselves this morning, cling to and rest in the words of Romans 8.1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As we come to a close then, in light of this text, I want us to ask ourselves two questions, or one question really. One question for us who are in Christ to ask ourselves. You might have heard this question before. What have I to dread and what have I to fear leaning on the everlasting arms? Fill in all the blanks you can think of of what you could possibly fear or what you could possibly dread. Do you doubt? Is your faith shaky? Does your spiritual growth seem stagnant? Are you wrestling with sins you thought you would be long over by now? 
Are you facing trials of various kinds that are shaking you to your core? All of those things are reasons that we may doubt, reasons that we may be fearful, reasons that we may be fearful to lay our head down at night and wonder, if I go to be with the Lord, is he going to accept me? Is Christ really enough? Am I going to make it? Is he going to welcome me in? Or is he going to say, depart from me, I never knew you? All those things are legitimate grounds for us as fallen people. But the good news of the gospel is, because of Christ, none of those things are legitimate anymore. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to fear. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to dread. In life and in death, what is our hope? That we are not our own but belong to God, as we sang earlier. Therefore, this Christmas Eve, rest in the finished work of Christ. Rest in the good news of Christmas. But if you're here this morning and you're not trusting Christ alone to save you from your sins, what do you have to fear and what do you have to dread not leaning on the everlasting arms? The answer is everything. Because apart from Christ, you're guilty. And we're not better than you. We're beggars telling other beggars where to find the bread. Through Christ, you can be set free this morning. You can be pardoned for your sins, declared righteous by the God who made you, reconciled to him. But it's only found in Christ, who through his life, death, and resurrection has secured freedom from condemnation for all who will trust in him. Turn to him and find that freedom. If you have questions or want to talk more about that, find one of our pastors after the service. Find me after the service. We love talking about Jesus here, and we love to talk with you about that. We long that today would be the day of your salvation because Christ is our only hope. He is our only means of being free. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace. And Lord, what good news is Christmas? That you did not leave us in the doom we deserve, but you sent your Son who purchased our freedom through his life, death, and resurrection. What a savior. Lord, would you give us grace to rest in him? Lord, if our faith is weak, would you strengthen it? Would you calm any doubts in our minds? Would you encourage us as we fight against our sin and seek to live in the here and now on the basis of this glorious news you've given us? Lord, strengthen our church family by the gospel. This is the only means of strength we have. We're not strong people. We're weak and frail. But the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. Through, faith, through the gospel comes faith. Help us then to rest in Christ by your grace. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.